0: Well, there, there was a guy, this, this dad, he was going to his kids' school carnival. And when they're at the school carnival and at this carnival, his kids ended up winning four goldfish. And, and not crackers, goldfish. And the dad's going, oh, great, okay. And he's got to go to the pet shop. And so his dad, uh, the dad goes to the pet shop and is looking around and goes, whoa, aquariums are expensive. And... What am I going to do? And he looks around, and he, and he sneaks off this dirty aquarium off in the back aisle there. kind of goes, okay, looks at that. It has the filter, has all the things. And he goes, oh, man, it's only $5. That's awesome. So he buys this aquarium, goes, it's totally worth the two hours of elbow grease, cleaning this thing out, puts the goldfish in there. The kids are so excited. The next day, one of those fish goes belly up Uh, that happens with goldfish. But then on day two, another one goes. And on day three, another one goes. And he goes, oh, no. He calls his friend from church and says, he knows he has a 30-gallon aquarium. Says, you gotta come over. He comes over and he says to him, I I don't know what's going on. And the guy goes, okay, tell me exactly everything you did. He goes, well, I got this aquarium uh, from the store. I brought it home and I cleaned it out. He goes, stop. How'd you clean it out? He goes, just soap and water. He goes, that's it. That killed the fish. Can't use soap when you clean an aquarium? And see, the very thing that he was trying to do in protecting the fish, saving the fish, was what killed the fish. He had killer soaps. And don't we sometimes do this? In our effort to clean up our lives and the lives of those around us, we use killer soaps, criticism, condemnation, comparison, performance, and in our our excitement for it, we become self-righteous, and it's more than our friends around us can even bear, and so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be looking at some misbeliefs, three misbeliefs that contaminate the gospel, and but before we get into those, we're going to read through our entire text for today, and I guarantee you that of these three misbeliefs, all of us have at least one active in our life right now that God needs to work on. But we're going to turn to Acts 15, so open your Bibles uh, to where we are in the story. The church has been exploding. It's been moving beyond the Jewish populations to the, the non-Jew, Gentile populations. And uh, over the last couple of weeks in our series, we've talked about the... Uh, conversion of Paul. And Paul now is one of the foremost missionaries with Barnabas, and they've planted themselves in Antioch. And so that's where we are, and they're having huge success with the Gentile believers. So if we uh, start right here, verse 1, here we go. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Okay, so this is talking about what circumcision was needed to go into worship, to be a part of God's people. That's what set them apart. This is the Old Testament. They've been doing this for a millennia. And so now they're telling them that they need to do this. But verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. I feel like this travel is like a first century social media campaign. So verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. So we're seeing that those people that went to Antioch were not alone. There's some people here in Jerusalem that think this too. And these are the Pharisees, the same legalistic, uh, Pharisees that Jesus was dealing with in the prequel in Luke, and, but now they've become Christians. These Pharisees have become believers, and this is what they're saying. So verse 6, the apostles and elders met to consider this question, you know, does circumcision require it or not? After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So Peter here is referencing uh, uh, something that happened in Acts 10 where God gave him a vision that it was okay to go in a Gentile house which he wasn't allowed to do before and he preaches and the Holy Spirit comes on all these Gentile believers. God is doing something incredible and miraculous in the world. So verse 8, God who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved just as they are. Peter just drops the mic. So verse 12, the whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James spoke up. Now James is the big dog here. Everyone is now paying attention to James. He says, brothers, listen to me. Simon, meaning Peter, has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. Okay, so how do you convince a Pharisee? You go Old Testament on them. And you show them how it all pointed to Jesus. And he's quoting from uh, Amos there. So, uh, verse 19, so James continues, It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from polluted... uh, polluted by idols, food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. And so if you skip down, they sent the letter, and now we're going to uh, verse 30. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. So what we see here, there was a crisis. Is there a co-requirement for salvation to faith? So the crisis has been averted. The contamination, in this case, has been removed. But what are the ways that we are contaminating the gospel with misbelief? And that's what we're going to look at it today and how people around us are maybe not responding to the gospel or how we and others around us are not living in light of it because of these misbeliefs so here is the first misbelief performance produces God's love performance produces God's love this is basically what's happening here in this passage it's the gospel plus moralism And this is going to produce a life of legalism. Moralism on, on some level is the promising of God's love and the satisfaction of being right with God. If sinners would just commit themselves to moral improvement. In the passage, the travelers are saying, you are not Christians. You are not saved. It's faith and this. That's what saves you. But Peter says here, very clear. the gospel is the grace through faith that we are saved. And in working out our following of Jesus, Jesus starts to redefine and give us a new lens and look at everything differently. But when we start to add co-requirements to the gospel, we start to move beyond it, and then there's a danger here. This, and this Kent Hughes warns us against this. He says this, History and experience have proven that anything made a co-requirement with faith soon shoves faith aside and becomes the means of salvation. If the apostles in Acts 15 had capitulated, that is not resisted, there would soon have been a Christian doctrine of salvation by circumcision and the first church of the circumcision. Let me illustrate it a a different way. There's a guy, and he needs a suit, and he hears this awesome tailor on the other side of town. And so he goes to the tailor, gets up on the platform, gets measured, the arms, the legs, the waist, everything. And the guy goes, all right, come back in a week and I'll get you the suit. And uh, he goes, all right. he comes back the next week and he gets the suit. And he goes, okay, I'd like to try it on before I take it home. he goes in and starts putting it on. He sees that the hips are really tight. And this leg seems longer than this leg. And the shoulders seem really tight on this side. And one sleeve is longer over here. And he comes out and goes, this suit does not fit at all. And the guy goes, oh, no, you're just, you're, you're doing it wrong. you gotta, you got to move your legs back this way. And you got to just tilt your shoulders this way. And then you got to take your, your hand and pull that baggy sleeve like this. And this other hand goes out straight like this. And then you just got to walk like that. And so this guy goes, are you serious? All right, this guy's a good tailor. He's walking down the street like this. And there's a couple ladies um, on a bus and see a guy. And one lady says, man, that guy sure is walking funny. And the other lady goes, yeah, but doesn't his suit fit nice? (laughs) And here's the deal. Often as the church, that's what we do. We get some idea of salvation as fitting into this suit and making people contort into it so that then God will save us. So then God will love us. And that's that's bondage. The suit fits as we are because of God's grace. Because when we add to the gospel, we actually subtract from the work of Jesus. We really do. It makes what he does insufficient. And so let's just take a quick look at a couple things that have happened in the life of the church and a couple things that maybe we have said that have done this. So What we have from the passage today, unless you are circumcised, you are not saved. That's from today. But what's the new circumcision? Unless you're baptized, you are not saved. Next one, unless you are not divorced, you are not saved. Unless you are Catholic, you are not saved. Things that have been said. Okay, those were just my warm-ups. Here's what it more looks like for us, okay? If you are for open borders, you are not a real Christian. If you voted for Trump, you are not a real Christian. If you are a socialist, you are not a real Christian. If you are a capitalist, you are not a real Christian. Could the people in your life tell you more about your political allegiances and stances than your relationship with Jesus? Could the people in your life tell you more about the moral Standing good things you do than your humble admissions of sin and the undeserved grace you've received in Jesus. When those things are true, we're adding to the gospel, we're making Christianity about political assent and moralism. Not what it is, grace and faith in Jesus to which there are no prerequisites. We're pushing people to contort into a suit that doesn't fit to be acceptable by God. People need more of the gospel. We need more of the gospel without prerequisites, without co-requirements, because the gospel destroys the need for performance to earn God's love. But let's go to another equally dangerous misbelief, our second one for today. All paths lead to God. All paths lead to finding God. God. See, the thing is, when everything is just going to work out, no matter what, we're going to become apathetic. You know, this idea is pluralism, that, you know, your truth, my truth, it's all truth. All things are going to work out. It's all good. The debate in Acts 15 is actually about exclusivity, and we know that the Gentiles were living in an extremely pluralistic culture. Will Jesus just be one of their many gods? But let's take a look at our culture, just real quick. A Couple of quotes, just a quote from one rabbi. I'm absolutely against any religion that says one faith is superior to another. I don't see how that is anything different than spiritual racism. This is what Gandhi says. My position is that all great religions are fundamentally equal. There's another one from Oprah. One of the biggest mistakes humans make is to believe there's only one way. Actually, there are many diverse paths leading to God. This is what Western culture claims as truth. Many ways or all ways point to God. No one way is right. No one way is better than the other. But when we think about what culture is saying for a second, just come with me, isn't there something nice about that? Sounds kind of nice, a little more peaceful. And maybe that pluralist way of thinking sounds like that's a more loving and more merciful God that will just kind of let people live the way they go, and any path is good, and and everyone's all in, pie in the sky, everyone's going to heaven, it's going to be great. But see, what happens is pluralism is taking something extremely true about God, that he is all-loving, he is all-merciful, and he does desire that every man be saved. There, that would be taken straight from 1 Timothy 2.4. But it takes that truth about God and eliminates the other aspects of his holiness, his righteousness, his justice, which in essence takes away all the power of his love and mercy. Now hear me out on this. If there's no justice, there's no true moral goodness holiness or righteousness, then there's nothing for God to have to be loving or merciful about. It actually makes him unloving because he doesn't care about injustice. See, what happens when culture takes the positive attributes of God that we see in the Bible and eliminates the other, it actually turns God into nothing, which really is what a religious pluralism worldview is, meaninglessness, And it's going to lead a life of apathy because in that mindset, it doesn't matter what you believe and that's meaningless. So if it doesn't matter, then who cares? Who cares? But here's the interesting thing. The exclusivity of the gospel, that one path through Jesus, seeks to be inclusive to all peoples. That's what we're seeing in the book of Acts. But the inclusivity of pluralism is also an exclusive claim to truth. Pluralism is also an exclusive claim to truth. Now let me illustrate it this way. Um, Some of you guys know Ravi Zacharias. He's a guy who was born in India in Hindu culture. He became a Christian. He's a a philosopher, and an evangelist, very eloquent speaker. And he was in California one time, speaking at one of the colleges. And while he was there, there was a professor of philosophy, an American, who had recently become a Hindu. And came up to Ravi and said, I don't think you understand Hinduism. And Ravi goes, okay. And he tried to get him to come to a debate in his class. And Ravi said, why don't you bring your class to my talk on Friday. He did that. And then the professor comes up up to him afterwards, and doubles down and said, yeah, it's confirmed. Ravi, you don't understand Hinduism, and I actually think you have problems with logic. And if anyone knows Ravi Zacharias, that's a bold statement to say that to him. And He goes, okay, well, let's have lunch. And the professor said, let me bring another professor colleague with us. So the three of them have lunch the next day, and Ravi and the other guy are just enjoying their lunch as this professor of philosophy is writing out all this stuff, making drawings, making things, and showing Ravi all the all the problems that he had, and it came down to this, that he said that Hinduism is Eastern thinking and uh, Ravi has become a Western thinker. That the logic, the two different types of logic are either or, this or that, up or down, or both and, more of a pluralistic way of thinking. And he said if you would just embrace the both and, Ravi, you and I would be good. And that's what Hinduism is, it's both and. And Ravi says, no it's not. Yes it is, no it's not, yes it is, back and forth. He goes, okay, Ravi says, you finish. He finishes his thoughts and he goes, okay. And Ravi goes, all right, now you start eating your lunch, you haven't had a bite yet. I only actually have one question. And this is what he says. So, what you are telling me, sir, is when I'm studying worldviews, I'm either to use both-and logic, or nothing else. Is that right? He goes, I'm either to use both-and or nothing else. Is that right? And the guy's fork is up to his mouth. He puts it down slowly, and he goes, that either-or does seem to emerge, doesn't it? You see, when we claim the exclusivity of the gospel, it's no different than claiming the exclusivity of pluralism. They're both exclusive claims to truth. To say that all people's truth is truth is a truth claim. See, pluralism claims that personal truth equals truth where the gospel says that Jesus is the truth. We gotta share this with our friends because here's the thing. People are just, if we don't say that, people are gonna think that they're all good and that you think that too. They're gonna think they're all good and that you think that too. And I'm not saying we need to use this type of thing as some logic bomb on Facebook, but to create some urgency in us to humbly be pleading with those around us to follow Jesus, to know Jesus. And the thing is, you, you could tell them is that all beliefs and paths don't lead to finding God. And, and actually, what's interesting, Christianity doesn't claim to lead us to find God either. It says the opposite, that God came to find us. Luke 19 says for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is good news. We need to tell people about Jesus. And he's really the only way. Don't contaminate it with pluralism. The gospel claims to be the truth. The gospel will destroy apathy in our lives. And it will bring needed clarity to those in our lives around us. So that was the second misbelief. The third one is obedience is optional. Okay, now I know you're thinking, wait a second. That sounds the exact opposite of your first point. But hear me out. When we see there's no prerequisite to God's grace and then our surrender to him puts us right with God, it is incredible news. But why does God save us? He loves us. He has a purpose for us. He created us. He designed us and knows what's best for us. You know, some might think in their hearts, I got my ticket into heaven, but I'm gonna go on my own train until I get there. That's contaminating the gospel because it communicates that God doesn't really care how we live. And as a result, we will become complacent. A way to think about this is Jesus has given us the freedom not to have to earn our standing with God, but then giving us the Holy Spirit so that we have the ability to live in God's ways. Yeah, I know there's some confusion on what we're supposed to be obedient to, and that's why we need to read our Bible. That's why we gather together each week and hear from others who have studied the Bible and to see what God has to say. You know, earlier... In the passage, they said, no circumcision required, no co-requirement. But then at the end, they said, don't eat the strangled meat, the blood, and be sexually immoral. What's going on there? They're saying there's no co-requirement for being right with God, but our response to God should be this. And all of those food things are are about community because the Jews had been so ingrained with this way of idle meat and blood and all of those things, the church needs to come together from cross cultures, different backgrounds, different worldviews, and to do that they knew that those things could not be present so the Gentiles and Jewish people in Antioch and all over could be together studying the teachings of Jesus. And the sexual immorality is they're pointing out a very specific thing. In, in churches and in very specific cities there are gonna be specific problems. And in this case James is pointing it out. And it's in line with how God is saying We are to live it's god's moral law and the thing is if you remember the passage said they were encouraged by this and responded joyfully you see when the kind of god that loves us in our brokenness and our sin also loves us enough to help us not stay that way God's looking to remove our selfishness and have us look to God's family, look beyond ourselves to what God is doing in our world in his kingdom. And we need to learn from him. We need to learn from his word. We're not gonna be more like Jesus just from trying. It's a relationship. To be more like Jesus, we have to know Jesus. I like the way they say it in the message, John 14, 15, if you love me, show it by doing what I've told you pretty straightforward. You see, when we dive deeper and deeper into God's great love in light of our sinfulness, our brokenness, and discover that he has a way of life because he's designed us, he's created us, we are going to want to respond. I mean, think about in your jobs when you have someone who's the leader, the guru in the area of your job, and you read his new book, and he has his incredible insights, and you're going to follow him to a T because you know he's the expert. There's no better expert on you than God he has a way that he intends you to live. Because when it comes down to it, an unresponsive faith is not faith. God's grace through faith, when you believe that, brings you into a relationship with God and that will change you. It will change us. See, God created all of creation and we took that and went away from God in sin. And rebelled. But God had a rescue plan to rescue all of creation. He sent Jesus to do that work and die on the cross and be resurrected. Be king and Lord of all so he could be Lord of us. And we could be with him in that kingdom mission right now and forevermore. That is the gospel. It's exciting news. We're part of what God wants to do. What he is doing. And when we do that, it's the antidote to All these killer soaps, these misbeliefs. We need to saturate ourselves in the gospel, a life living with Jesus, because when we do, the gospel will remove performance and does not lay unnecessary burdens on people. The gospel is going to remove apathy and compels us to tell others about Jesus. And the gospel will destroy complacency and produce in us a responsive, faith to the way that God has designed us to live so I know there's some of you here that have not made that decision to surrender to Jesus and you're probably thinking right now I still have some questions there's a lot of weird things you said in this passage and other things I'm still trying to get my head around it And and if that's you I would just say write on your comm card I still have questions put your email in there I would love to talk with you, email with you. But if you are, if you're thinking, wow, okay, I think this is true. This is the only way. Jesus is the way. There's something that's resonating with my heart and my mind that this is true. I urge and plead with you today to make a decision to surrender your whole life to Jesus. It will change you forever and bring you into eternal life with him. There's no better news. There's never been any better news than that. So as we end our time together, would you pray with me?